Well, we're going to be in Psalm 50 this evening, if you'd like to turn there. It's 559, just a page over from where we were earlier. Psalm 50, I'll be reading that whole psalm. And then we'll be reading responsively in a minute the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45, the first two questions. But we'll start in Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast, the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And our text this evening is going to be 12 through 15. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now if you'll turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to be in the Forms and Prayers book. Page number 252, you'll find this. Lord's Day 45, we're going to be reading responsively the first two questions Lord willing, in two weeks, I'll come back for question 118, but we'll be reading responsibly 116 and 117. This is on page 252 in your forms and prayers. Why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. 
and also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. Question 117, how does God want us to pray so that he will listen to us? First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. Dear congregation, there is a big difference between watching something informative and actually knowing something. I learned this going into seminary. <laughs> because media is so accessible today, by the course of our life, over the course of our life, we learn and consume such a wealth of information. I don't know if you follow blogs. Perhaps you've watched some of the Ligonier Q&A conferences. Those are wonderful. Maybe some TED Talks are okay. Or maybe you watch a History Channel. But with all that set to say that so much information goes through our head through the course of our life. But they say that to really know something, you can't just watch it. You have to process it in your mind through your own system of thinking and then be able to organize it and present it in your own words. And so this is why a lot of times we think we know more than we really do. But this is kind of how prayer works as well. It's processing God's word through your mind and heart and then speaking it back to him. To pray to God, you have to have a real knowledge of him. Now, I don't mean complicated and wordy prayers are better than simple and short prayers, just that we need to really internalize and personalize God's word to pray it back to him. And so it's not surprising to us that as we see a shrinking desire for the knowledge of God, we also see a misunderstanding of prayer or how to use it. In fact, if you've had experiences like me and you've been in any modern American churches, you'll notice that a lot of times they'll have maybe 45 minutes of singing, and they might have a good length of sermon as well, but the thing they're normally missing is a prayer, just usually having a very short prayer. But that goes along with the milk that they are consuming because we have to know our God. And of course, our country is even worse. We know that they've all but turn their back completely on God. Every 10 years about America prays, it seems like, those foxhole prayers. Well, the major issue here, as usual, is that we are so inward-looking. How can prayer benefit me and my goals, one might ask. Or a pastor might say, how can I make prayer not too boring to visitors in the worship service? Another might say, what is the shortest prayer I can pray? and still be doing it right? Well, the answer is also the same as usual as the problem. We should really be asking the question, how does God want us to pray? So tonight, we will look at the instruction from Psalm 50 through the lens of these two Heidelberg Catechism questions. So how does God want us to pray? Point one, God requires thankfulness, and we're going to pull a lot from question 
116, that God requires thankfulness in prayer. And secondly, God requires a heart of humility. And that's pulled from the second question, 117. So let's look first at that fact that God requires thankfulness in our prayers. The question in Heidelberg was, why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And it's sad to say, but the concept of thankfulness is quickly being forgotten in our culture today. In fact, basic manners in general are kind of disappearing. When Anna and I were living West Coast for about five or six years, and we came back to the Midwest, I was in shock when someone uh, at, at the grocery store was checking me out, and they said, how are you doing? And it was actually a shock that they asked that question. The idea of thankfulness is slipping away, as well as basic manners. And I hope that I'm not the first to tell you this, because it's very sad, but even the Thanksgiving holiday, more and more people are calling it Turkey Day. There's no Thanksgiving in their life. That also goes alongside all the entitlement that we're seeing. Everybody deserves everything without doing anything. And why is this? Well, this is a lot of the same reason we talked about this morning, because there's no standard. Calvin gives a really interesting illustration. It comes to my mind often. But if you had a world that everything's painted pitch black, and then the moment you see someone paint something dark gray, very dark gray, you might stand back and look at it and say, this is pure white, because you have no standard. You're only, you're only comparing it to everything that you're seeing around you. And so for this, too, because if we use ourselves as a measuring rod, then everything becomes skewed. And the problem of thankfulness enters in because we judge that we are worthy of whatever we want. So why would we be thankful if we already deserve it? Nothing is a gift to one that is owed everything. And this is ultimately the problem. If we treat ourselves as God because we're not looking at God. Well, in the psalm before us today, the people of God found themselves in a similar position. Their worship of God had become skewed. They weren't asking how God wanted them to worship, but were just going through the motions. Their hearts had been drifting away from God slowly and relying on outward actions to appease God. And he saw that they were not thankful to him. Israel gave their offerings reluctantly, thinking that God was far from them. They were only seeing men. But God came to them to warn them that they were straying from him. And he called them back with a warning, as a shepherd does if he sees a sheep going near a lion's den. And how does God shake them awake? How does he get their attention? Well, in our English translation, it says here, if I go to the next page, verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord. In the original language, it says, El Elohim Yahweh. It says God's name three times. How does he get them to look at him but to say his name? And it says, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. And when God speaks, this is the turning point for man, God's revelation because otherwise the sheep would go right into the lion's den. So he is now speaking to them to warn them. And when God shows his face to us and he speaks to us, then that's when we can really know what pure white is. And just for a minute here, if we can compare God speaking to man speaking, to our speaking, because that's what we see around us. And we so need the refreshing word of God to show us again what it is when God speaks. When we speak and we like to talk, in fact, with social media, there's not a lot of difference between talking to a wall 
you know, you talk to avoid. And a lot of times when we speak, we don't really say much. We see this a lot in politicians. There seems to be an art that they have of being able to speak and sound nice and not saying anything at all. But it is a danger for ourselves. We can be very good at talking in circles. We can be very good at defending pretty much anything and manipulating anything. And often as people, there's a lot of chatter. And you saw that too with the, with, uh, the Israelites in, in the wilderness too, complaining against God and groaning. But when God speaks, everyone listens. And all things become clear. There's no more running in circles. No more distractions, no more lies. Everything is revealed. And so God is saying to the people, remember who I am so that you will listen. When we speak, who listens? And how well do they listen? When God speaks, the entire creation listens and they're summoned to him. That's why it says, when the Lord God speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. It's talking about all of creation listens. Because he is their king and their creator. And the whole creation goes silent. Yes, the world curses God now, using his name in vain as a common word, and boldly speaking against him. They ask questions about, how can God be just if evil exists? They think they're clever. And when they boldly test God, or even curse him openly, it can even make us wonder why God puts up with it. Of course, in ourselves, it's much worse because we know him and we test him. So we see God's patience, don't we? But when God comes, there are no questions, there are no challenges to him, there are no clever retorts, no media collusion, just obedience and listening ears. And why is that? It's because of how he comes to us, who he is. What does it say? If you look at 3 and 4, he comes in a consuming fire. Verse 3, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. What happened in the Garden of Eden after the fall? Adam and Eve had sinned, and in the original language, it describes language like when God comes to them, there's a mighty tempest. Of course, they hid. And also, too, with Sinai, we hear the trumpet and the storm, the smoke. We read about this morning that people begged not to hear more from God that they'd have a mediator, otherwise they would die. And of course, there's many accounts of God's holiness and angels coming before men and them being fearful because of his holiness. So why, though, are we talking about holiness if we're supposed to be thinking about thanksgiving and prayer? Well, it's just the case that we always go back to this thought that we're pretty good people, we're pretty decent people. That's what it takes to get into heaven. Well, we have to be reminded again about God's holiness. Because if God isn't holy and perfect, and we can earn, therefore, our salvation, then why would we be thankful? If you purchased a house for exactly the right price at the right market value, then you're not going to be thankful, right? If you pay more than the house, then they're going to thank you a little bit. And a lot of people, they look at God, they look at Christ, and they don't think he's bringing salvation because they don't see the need for salvation because they don't see sin and holiness. They just think that Christ brings wise words, catchy phrases, and he's a good example. But when it comes to prayer, I think we have a great example of this in the Pharisee and the tax collector that Christ tells the parable of. Who saw the holiness of God, and how did they pray to him? The Pharisee didn't know God. He didn't see the holiness of God. And so how did he pray? 
He was proud, just like they would pray on street corners. He did that here. In fact, he didn't need to be saved. He was just thankful that he wasn't like this other man. And how did the tax collector pray? Because he saw God. He saw the consuming fire and he knew his own sin. So he actually saw God but didn't want to look at him because he knew his sin. And he just said a simple prayer, a short prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Yes, the tax collector saw God. And the lack of thankfulness from the people in this passage is because they were forgetting God. Just as our culture has, man tends to believe that if enough people say the same thing, it makes it true. But again, there's only one voice that matters, and that is El Elohim Yahweh. But the gospel truth is that, and this is the good news, even when we forget God and are unfaithful to him, he does not forget us or his promises to us. Listen to this from Isaiah 49, 15, from God himself. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraven you in the palm of my hands. So God comes to his people, and we can see the very image of Jesus on the cross from this verse, can't we? In our psalm, God comes to warn his sheep of their straying ways. But in Jesus, we see the clearest image of the love of God to track each sheep down, just as God does here, Israel. How far does God go to bring his people to him? All the way to the cross. We see it in Jesus' pierced hands. And we must never forget who we are, that these hands are pierced on our account and for our sins. And it is exactly this. This is the point. Between our understanding of our depravity and our sin and guilt, and the, and the way that we understand God's love and mercy, between that distance is where thanksgiving abounds. And that's the problem that we have when we look at ourselves and we forget to look at God. So let's move to point number two. How does God want us to pray? We said God requires thankfulness. And point number two, a heart of humility. And just again to summarize, question 116 was, why must we pray? It's how we show our thankfulness to God. Question 117 asks, how does God want us to pray? And there's really three points I'm going to pull from that. First, from the heart. Second, humbling ourselves. And third, in Jesus' name. And here in Psalm 50, we don't just see how God wants us to pray, but how God requires we pray. This is the whole point of the psalm. He has come to warn the people about their straying from him in their worship. And it's the heart of our text, which we read earlier. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. During certain Jewish feasts like Passover, hundreds of thousands of people, I've spoken of this before, would go up to Jerusalem and that many animals or much more would be sacrificed. So needless to say, it was a time of blood, a lot of blood. And we were looking recently at Exodus and the account of the plague of water to blood. And Reverend Rossi, of course, said that the land stank. Well, that's what the scripture says. I think here, too, it would have stunk during that time. All of the blood. Did God need their blood? Of course not. That's why I asked... Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
God is saying, it's not about the outward signs, but the inward heart that I am after. And this is why Jesus says the greatest in the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And here they are, Israel has forgotten this. But it was not always the case. When Solomon finished building the temple in 1 Kings 8, if, you, if you'd like to look this up later, it'd be good. 1 Kings chapter 8, and the ark of God was placed inside it and God descended into the temple in the cloud so no one can enter. Solomon, even with as great as the temple was, understood the symbolic nature of the temple because he says, how can God dwell in a building like this? Because God can't even dwell in all of creation. It's not big enough for him. So he understand. He understood the outward nature of these things. And then he prayed, and again, this is 1 Kings 8, he prayed then the promises of God back to God. It also notes that he sacrificed animals more than could be counted. But if you go and you read that prayer, you'll know again that what God was looking for is the heart. Three times he says, hear and forgive. He points our, our heart, our, our, us to the fact that it has to be repentance that we bring up to God. It's not just the sacrifice, but God is looking for the heart. In fact, he says, if we're dying in battle, then hear us and forgive us. If our crops are dying, hear us and forgive us. He, he knows that when those things happen, it's not because of the lack of God's oversight, but because of the sin of man. So again, Solomon at this time knew that these outward things were just pointing to the inward truths that we needed. It wasn't just blood. But as we see in this psalm, Israel had forgotten this. And in Jeremiah's time, it happened again, if we go back to the temple in Jeremiah's time, because God says, go to the temple and to call out to them, because the people would go out during the week and they would do horrendous things. They would sacrifice their kids to idols. I mean, they're murdering their children to idols. And they would come back in. They would do other horrendous things as well. But they would come back into the temple and they would say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It, they say it three times too, just as Solomon said three times, to hear and forgive. They're, they're looking at the outward signs of the temple. And at the time of Jesus, it was no different. The Pharisees, we knew how they prayed, right? They prayed on the, on the street corners loudly so that people could hear them, right? They, they wore scripture on their head in these boxes. They looked at the outward sign of things. And what was the temple like when Christ came? Well, the Pharisees, again, didn't really understand prayer. They didn't need it themselves. So the court of the Gentiles, which is a place for them to pray, what, there was a market there that the Pharisees and the leaders had placed. And really, why wouldn't there be a market there? Because they didn't understand prayer. They didn't, they didn't pray themselves. So, of course, if the Pharisees didn't need to pray and the leaders of the Jews, then why would the Gentiles need to pray? So when Christ came, he cleansed it twice at the beginning of his ministry and at the end to restore worship. Of course, that was temporary. Christ himself was the temple. But it's important that we see the hypocrisy even at the time of Jesus, especially at the time of Jesus. And in fact, there's an interesting example that Christ gives around that time too before he cleanses the temple. This is in Mark 11. So if you wanted to, you could look up 1 Kings 8, Jeremiah 7, and Mark 11, and you can kind of see, follow the temple through these things. But in Mark 11, Christ uses the example of the fig tree, and that's Israel. Just as the leader of the Jews represented Israel, this fig tree also represented Israel. And Christ came to this tree. It had big green leaves. It was promising wonderful fruit, but it had no fruit. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, 
Israel would be referred to as a fig tree, as a tree that would bear fruit. And God would come to the tree, and sometimes there would be fruit, and sometimes there wouldn't be. But in this case, Christ was using this as the heart of Israel, that they were relying on the outward leaves to show, you know, this is the outward. Look at the temple that we have. It's grand. They were doing it back at that time, too, with Herod's temple. But there was no inner fruit. Christ shuffled through the tree to see that there was no fruit in there. And actually, he then declared the tree that it would die. And the next day, the disciples saw, in fact, that the tree did die. It withered from the roots. And Christ then tells them, if you read the passage, it's a little bit mysterious, but he says it's about prayer, that they did not offer prayers of forgiveness. And this is the story of man. God desires the heart, but it becomes works righteousness. The Jews thought that God would accept them because they were better than the Gentiles. Some thought it was because they had the law of God. Others thought it was a temple when it existed. But they thought, if God won't save us, then who will he save? And that's something that also is so easy for us to think. But why do you believe Jesus has those scars on his wrists in that verse we just talked about? Do you look at them, or are you too busy? See, just like in this psalm where God is coming to Israel as a lost sheep, warning them never to take their eyes off him, that they would know their own sin and his grace, and that they would then be able to offer up thanksgiving to him, so too here, brothers and sisters, don't ever take your eyes off those wrists of Jesus. We must always look at the cross, because that is where we see most clearly our God. It's the only thing that matters. God who summons the whole world when he speaks, who will quiet all mouths at his second coming. Of course, he's already come in the second person, Jesus Christ, was beaten and spat upon and bore our shame on the cross for us. But that is what we must always look at. So why do Christians need to pray? Well, like we saw this morning with the blind man who received his sight, when he saw Jesus for the first time, how did he react? He worshipped. Why do Christians need to pray? Because we see God. But of course, if we're honest with ourselves, there are times and many times we're praying only out of habit, and that's the coldness of our heart, and that's something in heaven we'll never have to deal with again. But it's good for us to have those are good habits to be praying to the Lord. But what about those times when you just shut your eyes and say, thank you, Lord, praise God? Those are the times when we most clearly see him. Yes, we most clearly see Christ, and we need to in our prayers, but by the grace of God, it's the only thing that God views, too, when we come to him in prayer in his son's name. When you're awake at 3 a.m. for whatever reason and you pray for his help, God answers because Jesus died for you and he's seen the cross. It's the only thing God sees when you sin against him again and come to him asking for forgiveness. And when you're praying for the health of a child or someone that you love for days, weeks, years maybe, Christ, God sees the cross. Even when you're just overstressed or worried and you don't even know why and you come to him in prayer, yes, Jesus had to die for these prayers to reach God. And that's the third part of the catechism answer. Our assurance that God hears us. Why? Because he loves his son. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us what father would give his son a rock who asks for bread. Or if a son asks for a fish, who would, what father would give him a snake? Because he loves him. Yes, it's true. We have been made children of, of God through Christ as well. But much more so, Jesus, the son of God, asks for our salvation, for us to be with him. And I think maybe we can just read a couple of verses here from John 17. John 17, if you'd like to follow along, verse 20. That whole chapter 
Um, he's, he's praying, particularly for his disciples, but he applies that to all of us as well, verse 20. So God, the Father, is listening to his Son because he loves him. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, he's talking about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So how does God want us to pray? Well, physically, we close our eyes when we pray, and that's a good habit. But spiritually, he demands that we pray with eyes wide open, looking at him who can be seen most clearly in Christ on the cross. And only from that can our hearts be humbled and made to understand the beauty of the grace of God. And then our hearts can be softened to experience true thankfulness for the unspeakable gift that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would, in our lives, amongst the busyness, the difficulties, the trials, or even the ease, maybe especially in the ease, help us to always keep our eyes on the cross of your Son. And we pray also that you'd forgive us of our sins, that you would also keep your eye on the cross as well. And for that reason, we ask to forgive us. We pray this in your Son's name.